Well, hello there, OCD family community, and a happy Hanukkah and a very Merry Christmas to all who observe. We have Boxing Day just around the corner for some of our international fam, and hey, winter solstice just passed. I mean, we're just bursting with holiday spirit all around. And when the holidays are around, what do families do best? They say hello, they pull up a chair, and they talk about life. The journeys we've been on over the past season, over the past year, over the course of life. And you know what? This family, the OCD family community, is no exception. So join us, because today we're going to lean in and listen to our fellow OCD family member, Micah Howe, as he reflects on his wish list for himself and others, really thinking about what he wished his parents would have known or understood about his lived experience of OCD. So what are we waiting for? Let's get to it. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is, I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, so in true family style, when you all get together at this time of year, if you're getting together in person, what do you do? You come in or if you're hosting, you welcome others in. And if you're anything like me, you might ask, how was your drive, your flight? Do you need to use the washroom? Can I get you a drink? And as my dad used to always say, take off your coat and stay a while. Well, to be honest, you're catching me and my little fam a mid-commute, maybe? Maybe. (laughs) You see, we live in the Midwest. And the Midwest through the Northeast here in the States is really getting hammered with, uh, shall we say, weather? (laughs) First, we had rain, a couple hours worth of rain. Then the temperature dropped into freezing temps, making rain into ice. So we have icy roads followed by snow because the precipitation didn't stop, it's just now in frozen form. And to top it all off, not to be outdone, we have some wind, really cold wind, like below zero wind chill that bites. Oh yeah, it bites. And for what has been a pretty mild winter for us thus far, this is all rolling in at the same time that our little family was heading down to the Sunshine State for a family reunion and Christmas celebration. So now we find ourselves in the midst of uncertainty. Our initial flight's been canceled, the booking and the rebooking and the potential rebooking again of travel plans is keeping everything real interesting. 
But, you know, it is what it is. And so we're stuck not knowing when or where or what we will even be doing for Christmas, which is unfortunate in the sense that Santa knew we were going to be in Florida. And so that's where he went. I'd call a man and ask for a favor, but Santa has already left the building, y'all. And it is what it is. And so while stressors can ebb and flow, I'm feeling pretty good, pretty hopeful overall. And that's something that the old Nicole, or past Nicole, would not be handling so well. So despite the chaos, the disappointment, the hope, and the frustrations, I also feel grateful. Because old me would be sporting high-end hysterics about now. Oh my goodness, I just came up with that. Ooh, I love it though. I was flattering myself with the presentation of that. But enough about travel, because this problem, while it certainly is a pickle, at least for me, will last for maybe a day or two, fingers crossed, and whatever happens will become an ever-distant memory as time goes on. But this time of year, whether you're tuning in in real time or a newer member of our family tree, it's a time for celebration, a time for gathering. A time for worship or whimsy, depending on whether you rejoice in a virgin birth, the festival of lights, or a round little belly that wiggles around like a bowl full of jelly. Is it bad that I just got the, I don't think you're ready for this jelly. (laughs) But hey, my point, yeah, there was one, so I'll go back to it. The holidays can bring up a lot of themes, a lot of traditions and a lot of conversation. And one particular tradition that my family started when I was a kid was to make these wish lists. Did you make your Christmas list? Did you make your birthday list? Tell us what you want, what you really, really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want, I want, I want. Oh my gosh, right. That's right, you guys. I went there. I am going all the places today, folks, except maybe Florida. Ooh, it's funny because it's true. Maybe, maybe. But hey, stick with me here. Wish lists. We used to handwrite out these lists for Christmas or birthdays, and it was a way to communicate our wants or our needs. And you know, we do this list thing quite a bit. Like, what do I need from the store? Make a list. What do I need in a relationship? Or what will I need to complete this project? Hmm. I need some screw heads. I need a dowel rod. I'm needing hardware store things. (laughs) And so it only feels fitting with all of these holidays piling up right after what was the longest night of the year. And that's not me just being dramatic, y'all. Winter solstice. It's quite literally the longest night of the year. Oh, What better way to embrace these holiday tradition vibes and wrap up and reflect on 2022 and the years before than with a wish list from our OCD warrior, brother of a different mother, Micah Howe. Micah is a mental health advocate who suffers personally with OCD, depression, and hoarding disorder. And one of his deepest passions is to help parents and loved ones of those who battle with OCD to better understand the world from a sufferer's perspective. So Micah developed this list about the top eight 
things he wishes his parents had known. And y'all, he put a lot of thought and heart into this. So while it may be a wish list for him, it's really a gift for us. Because while hindsight is often 2020, the present can get muddy. And Micah gives us, as a family and supporters of our beloved OCD and OCD-related disorder sufferers, some insight into how we can continue to support, love, and champion our OCD family community in the here and now. So let's get to it, because Micah does a really splendid job of helping break these teachable moments down. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast, and today I am very, very pleased to be able to sit here with Micah Howe. And Micah and I actually have been email buddies for almost a year, we were talking about before we started recording today. But I would love for you, Micah, to be able to tell the OCD Family community a little bit more about yourself and really what brought you into the field of advocacy. I appreciate it. It's certainly an honor to be on the show. I, I really relish the opportunity to speak to this audience, parents, family members, friends of those who suffer with OCD. In my personal journey with OCD, which really began to get debilitating around the college transition period, I've met a lot of sufferers, a lot of families. And I've really developed a unique passion for advocacy, but also connecting with and trying to bring encouragement and hope to family members. Because for as many sufferers as you meet who are struggling greatly, you also meet a great amount of parents who are in a very uniquely difficult position of watching this horrible OCD suffering that they desperately want to ease. Um, and often they just don't know how. They feel overwhelmed. They are exhausted trying to find the right resources. Mm -hmm. and, and the list goes on. And, and I saw that in my recovery journey when I would meet families, I see it now as an advocate, whether it's at the OCD conference or wherever it might be, rubbing shoulders with parents and, and seeing the pain in their eyes. And it's given me just a, a real desire to speak from my lived experience to them, things that can bring hope and encouragement and insight. You know, I'm, I'm not a a therapist or a doctor, you know, nothing I intend to say today is, you know, to be interpreted as medical advice or any sort of offer of therapy. I'm just someone who has been through this. Uh, our family has been through this and I've, I've seen my parents desperately want to help me and, and often not know how. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, it's just a pleasure for me to be able to share some reflections from my own lived experience that I really wish my parents and, and, and really our family would have known years ago that might have made this journey a little smoother, might have helped them learn to support me a little better. Because certainly in the early going, especially, it was very rocky. Right. Yeah. I mean, 
I think that's really powerful because often hindsight is twenty twenty, where we can look back and go, oh, that would have been helpful. But at the time of not knowing and dealing with the uncertainty on multiple levels for you as the sufferer, as the family not understanding what's happening, there's multiple layers to it. And so I think it's really powerful. And I'm sure the community here is going to really appreciate, especially those in the thick of it, that they can learn from your hindsight. And granted, one person's experience is one person's experience. But this is this is really, really helpful because it gives us some insight into just the experience that both the sufferer and the family are going through. And I also think for family members where maybe their loved ones are already in recovery, it can never be overstated. Knowing that you're not alone and knowing that your experience wasn't just a personal failure failure as a parent, as a child, as a sibling, as a spouse, but that you were also dealing with this really difficult monster, the OCD monster, and, you know, having that validation of, yeah, this this is hard. This is this is hard from the sufferer's perspective. This is hard from the family or spousal partner perspective. And and yeah, so I really appreciate your willingness to come in and talk with us today. So you mentioned Around the time you went to college, you really started to have kind of an intense increase in OCD. I'm sure now in hindsight, you might be able to kind of look back to things in childhood and go, oh, yeah, that might have been a little flavor of that. But the intensity of it really amped up when you were going away to college. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, as you alluded to, they're definitely, in hindsight, you can look back and say there were a lot of things in childhood that were definitely going on that you can see now. Okay, wow, OCD was there a lot earlier than anyone ever realized. But something about the transition to college, stress involved in that, all the change of scenery, mm-hmm. the increased responsibilities that were just, you know, you just kind of go overnight from mom and dad helping with a lot of things to mom and dad helping with a lot less things. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, the degree to which the rituals take over and get in the way of your ability to live life can really become evident because it's like mom and dad used to be taking care of a lot of things that I didn't have time for because Mm -hmm. I was doing all these rituals. And now you get to college and wow, I, my rituals are a lot more in the way of functioning than I ever realized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you realize your home environment too, over the years, over the years, may have really kind of insulated you as well in in being able to maintain some of those rituals. So then when you go out and the environment isn't being reinforced or insulated in that same way, then not only are you realizing probably the things that you took for granted more or less because you didn't have to be the person responsible for it, and also how much time really that those rituals were eating into your quality of life, your time to be able to engage in the world. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things we were going to discuss today, Micah, so we, you know, we've been email buddies, as I said, and you were able to give me a top eight list of of some of the things that you wish 
in hindsight could have been a little different or that you can provide some insight to that might be helpful for our listening community. And so one of the one of the first things that you mentioned was that you wish that your parents had been more able to differentiate between the characteristics of your personality and the symptoms of your OCD. And I think I think that's something that a lot of OCD sufferers can relate to, certainly. And so would love to kind of start there with you in terms of speaking to that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when my OCD journey began, you know, I didn't really know what I was up against. My parents certainly didn't know what we were up against. And I think one of the things that made things very challenging is that I was not only suffering with this really difficult disorder, but it was pushing me to do things that were very annoying, very overbearing, very exhausting for my parents. And it was difficult, particularly in the early going, for them to recognize and have enough education about OCD to recognize that these behaviors that are really getting under their skin are things that OCD is really pushing Micah to do as opposed to it's lost on Micah that these things are annoying or frustrating or embarrassing and he's just doing them because they're an overflow of his personality and he really doesn't care how it's affecting all of us. Mm -hmm. I, I think that was something that would have helped so much if, if we would have had more open conversations and my parents could have better understood that I feel terrible about the way that these rituals are getting in the way of our relationship, our family life, and I see it, mm -hmm. but I wasn't in a place then to effectively cope with a lot of these things. And so OCD was having this menacing effect in our family, but I was the one being blamed for it. And it really made things challenging for sure. Would you mind, Micah, if I ask, and no pressure if you're like, I'll pass, but could you give us an example of something that may have been something they found annoying or frustrating that you were also finding very distressing, but not with the intent to annoy, but just in the ritual connected to those intrusive thoughts you were having. Yeah, I can think of a couple of examples that come to mind that would probably be helpful. One that I can think of is a real obsession that I had yeah. with making sure that my dad was cooking in a way that satisfied my OCD. So quite literally, we had too many cooks in the kitchen. I was over his shoulder making sure, dad, did you wash your hands after you touched that? Did you wash that before you did this? Dad, that knife looked really close to your finger. Are you sure you didn't cut yourself? And now we've got blood in the vegetables. I mean, as you can tell just by listening to this, I mean, how annoying if you're the one cooking. And, and so I think for a while, it was really difficult for dad to realize he knows how annoying this is, but there is this anxiety, this need for certainty driving this desire to get reassurance that everything is being done 
in a safe way. Mm -hmm. And I think for a while, dad just thought, wow, does he not realize how rude this is to do to someone when they're cooking? So that that was an example that was challenging. Another one I can think of is I made our family late a lot. And so, again, it was kind of this thought process of, does Micah not understand the importance of being punctual? Does he not understand how it is embarrassing to us to show up late on his account and always have to be explaining or not explaining why we're not respecting other people's time? Mm -hmm. It it was very challenging. Mm -hmm. And, And it was also hard for me to explain the very mortifying reasons for why we were ending up so far behind. And, and right. so there was this sense of, you know, Micah, you, you, you need to plan better. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be more considerate. You need to be more ready. And it was so hard for me to explain. I do plan. I am ready. But at the last minute, OCD throws these wild checking urges at me. And I am going back to check things Mm -hmm. and I'm between a rock and a hard place. I know I'm disappointing family members and I hate that, but I also have this real sense that I'm going to be miserable all night long if I don't go back and check that stove for the ninth time before we leave. Right. And it was so challenging and so embarrassing to even try to explain to mom and dad how I know from your perspective, this looks like I'm not considerate, but if you could see the the complex and overwhelming nature of these rituals from my perspective, I, I'm trying the best I can. And so those were a couple of examples where just caused a significant amount of frustration and tension because of my inability to help them understand Mm-hmm. what was going on and their inability to recognize when rituals were happening. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really good point because you, you're you mentioning for with the cooking, for example, they might feel like you're micromanaging me and you're just really kind of micromanaging about how other people do things as be done your way, being attributed to your personality of being particular mm-hmm. or whatnot. When really it was driven out of that place of fear and anxiety, and really they don't realize they're negotiating with OCD, not with Micah, not with you. And Mm. so in terms of being able to differentiate, both of you, as you pointed out, didn't know exactly what you were dealing with. So for you to be able to communicate it to them and for them to be able to understand it or learn more about what's happening for you is hard. So what do you think a suggestion to be helpful with that is? Because if people are listening to the podcast, they're probably already to the point of going, well, I think OCD is at least a possibility if not there. But it's hard because you don't know what you don't know. Like what would you think could be helpful in terms of bringing about more awareness in that situation? You know, just speaking from my own experience, I wish that my parents and I had worked a lot harder on doing what we had to do to really have candid conversation about Mm -hmm. my OCD. Mm -hmm. Because I 
I didn't always feel like I could talk to them. They didn't always know what to ask. But if we would have had more discussions about, you know, and to some extent, I mean, it, that that requires that I'm motivated for treatment, right? But but if 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 I'm motivated for treatment and I'm willing to disclose, you know, okay, mom and dad, here's some of what's going on in my head. Here's what some of my rituals are so that they could begin to develop an eye, like you said, for when they were dealing with me and when they were dealing with OCD. And, and I, I do take some partial responsibility for that because uh, whatever the reason was, whether it was stigma or just feeling like, ah, they're not going to understand anyway, I barely understand this. Right. I did keep mom and dad in the dark about a lot of this. And, and that made the situation uh, a lot more difficult. And, and I think I wish we would have found more ways to nurture our relationship because I think there came a point for us where a lot of our communication just got reduced to ways the OCD was frustrating. And pretty soon that's what the relationship was. It was hard to just get away from the OCD and just do things like we used to do. And I wish we would have made that more of a priority because we lost some of that closeness Mm -hmm. that we ended up really needing (laughs) when when it came time to open up about some of these things that are hard to talk about for parents that are close to their children, but let alone when you feel like OCD has already put distance in that relationship. And now we're trying to communicate with each other on these difficult topics. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're already feeling kind of polarized, like pushed apart by everything that OCD is bringing into the equation. And really you're both victims of that. You're, you're both at the mercy of OCD and it can be a real challenge to realize you guys are on the same page. It's not you against each other. It's you against OCD. And it's really hard to get there if you don't know that's what you're dealing with. But I really appreciate that insight in terms of, you know, just working on communication and not just about the annoying things, frustrating things, bad things, but being able to just be really intentional about trying to communicate. Now, as a teen, And I'm not sure how you were as a teen boy, but I think a lot of people, (laughs) teens are like a wonderful enigma and they're growing up and they think they know everything or they don't know much because they're naive and not experienced yet. But, you know, going back in time, if your parents were like, Micah, what are you really thinking about? What's behind this? What's going on? Do you think you would have told them? Because I think you, you, you mentioned keeping them in the dark, but I think that's the thing, right? These Intrusive thoughts are so, so much an assault on, on who you know yourself to be. And that's where a lot of that panic and fear, could I actually be this person or could I, could this happen? Could I be a part of that? That I think it's hard enough even for us adults sometimes to go, okay, this is what I was really thinking. Because we're afraid, like, what if that is me? OCD likes to try and pull the wool over our eyes. Do you think as a teen, if they had gone to you and said, Micah, what's up with this? Like, come on, man. You know, do you think you would have been like, well, frankly, I was worried that 
especially if it's a harm-based thing or, you know, there's lots of different areas where OCD can kick in. So do you think you would have been able to have that conversation with them, at least in some capacity? Or do you think it would have been hard for you to not just kind of shut it down and be like, nope? You know, I think it would have been challenging, but I think if anything would have opened me up and made me more likely to disclose, Mm -hmm. it would have been an awareness that my parents were pretty well versed in how OCD can present. You know, if I'm talking to my dad when my journey first began, and and I'm I'm not very aware of OCD myself. I know he's not very aware. All of a sudden, expressing these intrusive thoughts to him are it's a lot scarier. It's a lot riskier. Versus, ask her a point later on in our relationship where I knew that Dad knew more about OCD because we had gone to the the OCD conference together. Mm-hmm. I knew he was reading some books about OCD. That really started to reduce the risk. That really started to limit some of the fear because it's like, okay, I know dad has heard about how wild and scary some intrusive thoughts are that other people struggle with. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to be the first one <laughs> you know, at that point to tell him I'm having a thought that sounds really ridiculous to the average person. But yeah, certainly early on when I was more afraid of my own OCD than I would later come to be. And I felt that dad would be more alarmed by how odd some of my intrusive thoughts were. It certainly would have been harder then. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's helpful feedback. And I think, too, you know, there are things that feel really, really intrusive. And there are things that after you have the insight of knowing you have OCD, you go, oh, that was an OCD thing that I was doing that feel a little less assaulting, I guess, on the it's all bad, but, you know, less distressing to that person. It's so individualized. OCD and because we're also creative and we're different people and we have different brains. So it's all very, very custom to each individual person. But I think like going back to a teen, sometimes they may not tell you, hey, I'm worried that I'm going to assault somebody. I'm worried that I killed somebody. I'm worried that I might have had a sexual encounter with somebody. But they might go, yeah, I was concerned about, you know, leaving the stove on. I've done that before. And and so I think I think something like that, they can give you an in at a lower level intensity. And it's not saying that your loved one is for sure having those thoughts, but it is possible, very possible. OCD can ebb and flow very quickly. And so I like to remind people, you know, our creative brains learned how to put man on the moon. They figured out CGI and they make these amazing things. They come up with these crazy stories and create series like Game of Thrones and things like that. Our brains can come up with amazing things, not just when it's productive and useful for, you know, advancing society. It's also, it can be very terrorizing. One of the things, though, I like to remind people, even if they're not sure, if they're dealing with OCD or they're just unsure, family members can always ask, what is the function of this behavior? Because you're aware of the behaviors or the compulsions maybe that are rubbing you the wrong way. 
And so if you're like, hmm, I wonder what is behind that, sometimes just asking your loved one, like, why do you do that? Like, does it help here? Does it help here? You know, just like, why? You know, if somebody were to be like, why, why are you concerned if, if I maybe cut myself? What would happen if there was blood? And kind of following the rabbit down that trail. If you can find the function of it, you might be able to unearth an intrusive thought as well that the person may or may not have insight over, but can also be helpful in having those direct communications. So I think I really like what you said, improving the communication and making communication and family engagement about more than just what's bothersome or hard, but being really intentional on still creating those new memories. Even if there's a chance you could get triggered trying to focus on positives and what you want to be doing as a family, not what you feel like you can manage if things go okay for your loved one. So I think that's really helpful. Also, you talked about, you know, you wish your parents had recognized how much OCD eroded your own self-image. And I thought this was a really a powerful point. And so I'd love for you to share more about that. Yeah, you know, we we talk a lot in the OCD community about rituals and compulsions and intrusive thoughts and how distressing those are as a sufferer. And certainly they are. I mean, they have been a, a real, you know, difficult part of my experience with OCD. But something that isn't always addressed or at least not as often mm-hmm. is that I personally struggled with was the residual impact of OCD on my sense of Mm self-worth. And and I I think the best way I can explain this, Nicole, is to say that I had OCD. I had all the symptoms of OCD that were highly distressing. And there was this additional plane of suffering that I would describe as the way that OCD really interrupted the path that my life was on. And it made it very difficult to reach all these milestones that were very much tethered to my sense of value as a person. You know, I got a lot of self-worth out of the idea that I was going to live independently after high school. I was going to graduate from college. I was going to go on and get married and have a family and mom and dad would be grandparents and and we would have these amazing family memories later on. And so both my parents and I had spent years dreaming of what the next 10, 20, you know, whatever years it would be after the teen years would look like. Mm -hmm. And so I felt some sense that this is what makes me valuable. This is what makes my life meaningful. This is what makes my parents proud of me, Mm -hmm. right? That I go on and achieve these things that we've all wanted for so long. And as OCD gets in the way of those milestones, there is this sense of I've let myself down, but I've let others down. Mm -hmm. And there goes from this sense of 
I think the life I'm living is making mom and dad proud to I'm really scared that I'm kind of a burden on mom and dad now because I don't know if they planned on raising me beyond high school graduation. I don't know if they planned on me having to step away from school to go to intensive treatment. I don't know if they planned on all of their conversations with people at church being a little bit uncomfortable when people say, hey, how's Micah doing? And they have to kind of explain, you know, in whatever way they decide that, well, you know, we, we love him. He's our son. But also, yeah, he's not out there doing what your sons and daughters are doing anymore. And that whole feeling really started to, you know, cut away at my sense of having value and meaning. And this is pretty common, I've found anyway, in talking to other sufferers, especially, you know, some of the ones that, you know, I'm an only child, so I didn't personally struggle with this. But one of the things that I know some people do struggle with as I've spoken with them that is really hard to hear is this sense that my siblings are doing so well. And, you know, now I'm on a totally different life path than them. And whether it's verbally said or not, I can't help but feel that mom and dad are disappointed in some way. And so I think I, I wish that I could have talked to my parents more about that. I wish they could have sensed that a little more. It would have been helpful if my parents and I could have had a lot more affirming discussions about the unconditional nature of their love for me and that I, I mattered more to the family. There was more to my role in the family that I fulfilled all the expectations that we all had for me at one point. That ended up being a big part of the struggle for me. Yeah, because you're also holding the grief for yourself of going, I didn't see my trajectory going this way. And then that feeling, which OCD can really add some fuel to that fire on like, yeah, yeah, what if you're disappointing them, you know, then that mm. shame comes in. And so what do we find when there's an increase in the shame and in the pain? Well, we find symptoms tend to probably intensify in most cases because you're feeling more of that distress. And it may not even be an intrusive thought distress, but any distress, your body starts to code as danger because, you know, I, I'm feeling distressed. So I think it really speaks to kind of the first point you were talking about, too, in, in the difficulty in differentiating the personality, because then you do feel like, well, this is me. You know, a lot of the work we do in treatment is helping you understand you're you. OCD has been trying to hold your hostage, but this is not you. This is OCD and being able to separate that out. And so having your self-image be consumed by what if dot, 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 and fill in the blank, OCD is very quick to, uh, that's, that's really, really hard. And so I like that in terms of, I wish we had just had more affirmations about what what are we doing well? What is great? What, and we all need that. We all need to be reminded that we're seen, that we provide value, and it's not all based on performance and what you do and what what boxes you can check. So I think that is that's really important. A lot of times parents ask, 
what do I do to support my child that's not accommodating? Well, that's a great way to support without accommodating, to go like, you're worthy. You're regardless of what's hard in a day or regardless, like you're worthy. And being able to celebrate that is really, really important. So I, I think that's it, really helpful. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it's, you know, and I really think about this, you know, I imagine this will air sometime around the holidays or at least while the holidays are on people's minds. And this is a concept that really had a lot of application to me around the holidays. Mm -hmm. The holidays and holiday parties is a time when people love to get together and catch up on life. And sometimes when you're struggling with OCD, that can be really intimidating because, you know, as you're sitting there with your mug of cocoa and your frosted sugar cookie and listening to everybody say, you know, how they're expecting in a number of months and they just got into this graduate program they always wanted to be a part of, or there's this awesome career change they're embarking on, or they got a new job or whatever. And it can be really hard, especially in those young adult years when it comes to you and you don't have those exciting things to mention. Mm -hmm. and, and you're just trying to do the best you can to get through that because people they don't always ask about things that are not exactly happy to talk about. And so I think, you know, some of the times when I have felt the most seen is when I have had the courage to be honest about, well, I've, I've, been, in, I've been in treatment for a while, the last you know, number of months. And somebody just really surprised me and said, Oh, tell me more about that if you're comfortable. How, how is that stretching you out? And all of a sudden it's like, wow, they actually, even though this they is care. not fun, they care. They want to know, even if I don't have something really exciting to talk about, you know, from how most people typically think of exciting, it means a lot even for somebody insofar as they want you to be comfortable to ask, you know, tell me a little more about what you mean when you say you've been doing a lot of exposures and what are the major challenges of that? And mm -hmm. having people that are interested in your recovery journey, it is, it is incredibly meaningful because it's not extremely common. Well, and you know what I think it is too, Micah, I think when we can risk being vulnerable, and I think this is something to be said in general, you know, a lot of people Everybody, not just a lot of people, everybody struggles with something. And there is that pressure. We've talked about before on the podcast, this, this idea of toxic positivity. So yeah, here are all the things that are going great. But when somebody says, hey, real life, here's what's going. And actually, I'm proud of myself because it's not easy. It's not easy to do. And I get out of bed every morning. That is a, that's success. That is success. It, it allows people to take down their guard a little bit and go, whether they share or not, go, yeah, like other people struggle with things too. And it helps us to feel less alone, even if they don't end up reciprocating with a shared story. But sometimes they will. Sometimes you'll connect over those kind of things. So it is really powerful when people are able to tell their story. And it is a gift not only to be seen and heard, which is of extreme value, but for other people to hear and go, oh, my gosh. 
I've, I've totally gone through that. So I think that is really, really powerful. The next thing on our list here that you were able to reflect on, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about, you put, I wish my parents had focused more on their determination to help me than how we would ultimately reach our desired destination. So embracing the process rather than the destination. And yeah, I think this was a really important one in terms of managing expectations and supporting the process. It's all about the process when it comes to OCD. So I'd love to hear more on that. I think, you know, when my struggles with OCD started out, I mean, my life was just in shambles. Mm -hmm. And so we were in this rubble and we spent a lot of time and energy brainstorming and, and trying to think through how do we get from where we are to the life that we want Micah to have? And the chasm between where we were and where we hoped I would be was so large at that time right. that that thought process was almost paralyzing right. more than it was activating. Mm -hmm. And it got my parents in a place where they really felt helpless and they really felt like we are so far in over our heads. And it didn't make anybody feel like we were approaching OCD from a posture of strength. Mm -hmm. it, it made us feel weak. It made us feel inadequate. And I wish, as you had said, I, I wish that my parents were able to see that their innate determination to help me succeed as their child was much more of a powerful asset in my recovery journey than they realized at the time. I think that you have such an interesting story, you know, being someone who suffers with OCD and who is an OCD therapist mm -hmm. and, you know, you have children with OCD. And, and I think that is, that's so amazing. But I wish what my parents would have understood is that a lot of people whose children have great recovery stories and who provide incredible support to their children, they are just ordinary men and women mm -hmm. whose lives do not even have OCD on the radar. Right. And, and then one day their child has OCD and there they are, you know, just feeling like they're drowning, feeling like there is so much to learn and I don't know how to learn it. And they're staring at the clock in the middle of the night, you know, with those red letters and numbers of 3 a.m. thinking, how are we ever going to get where we're trying to go? And, and just to realize that a lot of parents are just riding their determined love for their child to the resources they want to learn more about, to the support networks that help them get through. And I just feel like my parents early on just didn't feel like supporting someone with OCD was something that ordinary people learn to do, you know, through grit and, and a desire to help their child. I, I felt like we just felt like, oh my gosh, you're either fortunate enough to just know the ropes here 
or you just stay lost forever. And what I see again and again, even now as an advocate, is so many parents who offer amazing support to their children and have been on unbelievable journeys with their kids. Most of them started where my parents started. Yeah. Just ordinary men and women that didn't know much about OCD. They just knew they loved their kid. And let's take this one step at a time and just try to connect to the right resources and see where it takes us. And I wish I wish my parents had had that encouragement when we were getting started. Yeah. Well, and your ability and so many other advocates' ability to use your voice has paved a way for other parents to be able to do that. And and so five years ago, it wasn't the same. Ten years ago, it wasn't the same. Twenty years ago, it certainly wasn't the same. Even though ERP has been around for 50 years, I can say as a therapist, I didn't realize that OCD was so prevalent or that even I had OCD, I had anxiety. Yeah, I'd be the first to admit, but I didn't realize it was actually OCD until way into my career. And I started to treat OCD before I realized like, wait a minute, you know, some of the ways that I just process information, which has always been my normal, actually is a little bit of, you know, a cluster of different mental compulsions that I get stuck in. And rumination and and trying to solve all the things. And so just being able to put your voice out there and say that is providing some insights, some light bulb moments where people, even if they're not sure, can at least question and build that team. One of the things that you, you mentioned and I think is so important, not only for the OCD sufferer, but for the loved ones, is building that support team. So feeling like you have people you can talk to where you don't have to be like, oh, what do I say if they ask, you know, how things are going? Those are the people they got your back. Hey, hey, it's a new week. Where we at? You know, because the family is really experiencing distress, too. And it's about them learning how to tolerate the distress for themselves as well. They feel helpless. I can't change this for my child. And then they can't change it for themselves. It is all a big exercise in distress tolerance, really, or distressed acceptance, if you want to put the more positive spin on it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real challenge. And so just having, I think a lot of times, like, you know, in hindsight, again, and I can see this even for myself as a parent, we can go, I did this with the intention of I'd do anything for my kid. But it can come off when it when there's fear, and there's anxiety involved, can come off to the child as I'm mad at you. This is wrong. Why can't you get it together? When really they're trying, if you go back and ask a lot of parents, they're like, well, I'm trying. Like I, I was doing what I knew to do and I messed up and I've never ever meant to communicate that. But yeah, just being really clear of like, I am going to do everything I can, not about where we're going to go, but how we're going to get through this afternoon, maybe just this morning, maybe just this hour would be really, really helpful. And the sufferer can also say, okay, I'm going to try and do that too. Like, I'm going to try and get through this hour. It's a much more meetable goal. And sometimes that hour will be hard still. But it's different than, yes, that chasm that you were describing that feels a million miles away. We'll get to Mars before we get there. I mean, it it can feel like that. So I, I think that's really, really helpful. 
another reflection you have here for us, and again, I think this is really helpful for our listening audience to get kind of in the mindset and be able to learn so that this becomes less and less difficult to spot. Another reflection that you shared here was that I wish my parents had been able to cultivate a more compassionate philosophy of refusing to accommodate my OCD. And I think this is a big one. So I would love to hear you talk more about that. Yeah, I, you know, accommodation is is a theme that is obviously very prolific in the OCD community. And it's, it's certainly something that when I look back at my experience, I wish that my parents had had a deeper understanding of how they were accommodating my OCD and how to change those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish they had, especially my dad, I wish he had recognized that a lot sooner. But even when dad did begin to recognize to some extent his role in resisting being pulled into my rituals and that sort of thing. I think it would have helped us dramatically if it could have been motivated more by love and compassion than by exasperation. Mm -hmm. I think by the time dad realized that he was accommodating my OCD in certain ways, there was so much frustration so much exhaustion that a lot of times when something would come up and he would recognize that I was doing a ritual or maybe I was involving him in a ritual, his responses would often be very hard, very frustrated and understandably so to some extent. I mean, I I realized that my OCD was a lot for him as well, but I think Looking back, it would have helped our relationship so much more if dad and I could have approached the topic of accommodation from a perspective of, you know, dad is my teammate in this and dad is out of love, willing to do something that makes me uncomfortable, but is ultimately in the best interest of my long-term freedom from this disorder. I wish my dad had been able to sit me down and not so much convey frustration, but convey what I know was there. It's just, I don't think he knew how to express it and how helpful it could have been. You know, I I think dad really did have a lot of feelings that that he could have expressed uh, along the lines of, you know, you know, Micah, it breaks my heart to see OCD get in the way of the life that you want in the ways that it has. And every time you face a situation that gives you anxiety, it is either an opportunity for us to get closer to the life that we want you to have, that we've always wanted you to have, or it's an opportunity to get further away from the recovery that we want for you. And and if my dad could have said it to me that way and said, I know this isn't fun, but I just don't want to be complicit in a process that I know is ultimately keeping you from the life that you want, that would have put a whole new flavor around the topic of accommodation for me. 
right. um, as opposed to we are just so sick of OCD running all of our lives and it needs to stop. I mean, while I understand the sentiment of that, it is very yeah. hard to hear as the sufferer that in uh -huh. some ways you are the one, even though it's your OCD, but it's internalized, at least it was for me as I am the reason this family is so stressed out. And that was hard. Right. And you're the person that, you know, it's not like he has to carry the torch forward. It's like, you know, I'm it's okay. Because it's not an easy thing to engage in those exposures. And so if you're feeling that pressure, you're more likely to jump in, but get even stuck in some mental compulsions. Am I doing enough for them and whatnot? And you're, while well, you're trying to give up other compulsions, it can be really difficult. You know, one of the things I've liked learning about, and I don't know if you know much about the space program that they, huh. so usually with younger kids, but even older kids, adult children, it can be helpful for. Something I really like that is couched in that model as they approach accommodation, they make these announcements where they make the parent or the person that is a caregiver in their life say, I haven't given you this opportunity to shine, really. And I've played my part in this. And really, I believe in you. And I know that you can do this and that we can do this and we're all on the same team. You know, they have these very, very like scripted moments to really lean into like, hey, you know, we support you in this process as hard as it is. And I think it's a great way to go about accommodation. I really like what you said as well. I think that was a really nice and beautiful way to express support. Just even going, I don't, I don't know what to do, but I love you and I'm sorry you're hurting would be helpful, right? OCD is going to try and be real bossy, but I'm not going to let it boss me, even though I know it feels like that's what would make you feel better in this moment. But I can't because I love you too much. And I see these dirty tricks that OCD is up to. It's a very different feel. I know for myself as a parent too, you know, so I'm an ERP therapist, but <laughs> my son, whether he likes it or not, gets to face all of these different, you know, intrusive thoughts on the regular. But I know that there's been times even where I've had to go back and apologize. So it's like, if, even if you do kind of get frustrated in the moment, being able to go back and be like, you know, I'm sorry, I'm mad at OCD, not you, and how OCD bosses you around. And if someone, if anyone, let alone OCD, was to bully you, I just, I get really upset, but I bet that didn't feel good for you because I'm not upset with you. And, and being able to apologize and go back, which I think is a great skill for parents anyway, and adults sometimes need to go to their children or children in general if they've messed up and go, I messed up. It's a really powerful thing. And it, and it helps that person feel respected and seen and validated for the efforts that they're putting in. And so I think that's a really, really good point. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that my OCD recovery has really helped me to see, I think a lot of us, we look at relationships with our parents and we think love equals happiness and you know us not getting along or me not being treated the way i want to be treated equals 
disappointment and frustration. And I think one of the things I really had to learn is that while those might be general guidelines, there are also other categories of experience that I've had with my parents that can be coming from a good place, but not always feel the greatest. You know, growth is something that is so good, but oftentimes so painful. Right. And I think that's a new category in my recovery that I had to really develop is that I had to learn for me personally that my relationship with my dad is not going to be all black and white, that either dad is acting in my best interest all the time and we are always grinning from ear to ear because of it, or he's acting against my best interest and we are at odds with each other. I, I did have to have that openness to say, in some of these situations, I experienced that I really encountered significant growth um, that involved the way that my dad and I interacted, but it didn't necessarily feel good in the process. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like it, a lot of people can relate to if you, whether you're a person that exercises on the regular or not, if you do a new exercise, you're likely to come home a little sore. So whether that's walking around because you went to a festival with with friends or family or whether it's you did a new gym workout or whatnot. And so a lot of times we can recognize like, oh, there's pain, but it's good pain because it means I was, you know, I was I was pushing myself a little bit, not to the point of, you know, debilitating, but. I was pushing myself a little bit. And it's it's very similar within OCD in terms of being able to flex and work through a lot of this distress. It can be really painful. The pain doesn't last forever, but it can feel really all-encompassing at the time, as can the pain from the intrusions, the obsessions and the compulsions. And so it's hard. It's hard work. We don't want to downplay that. It's not an easy cakewalk. And for parents, it's very counterintuitive. Even for me as a therapist, I was in the field many, many years before doing ERP therapy. And some of the some of the things you say, some of the things you do, you go, well, I never imagined that I'd be doing this in therapy. It feels counterintuitive. And yet it's exactly what is needed to lean in and apply pressure to these thoughts that are just thoughts, that they're not real. We don't have to bow down to them, that we could sit with them and we can be distressed and still live our life. Ultimately, that distress tends to dissipate, that pain tends to lessen over time as we can really lean in and go, okay, okay, I'm here for it, I guess. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we'll see. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't, but I will continue to show up. And yeah, it's a really hard journey. And so that compassion goes a long way. Even if it doesn't change the level of distress, it changes the level of impact in terms of, you know, what's on the line. Am I, am I totally, you know, screwing this up? No, your parents still love you madly, but they, they are struggling to know how to share that. And so I think that's helpful feedback for our listening community. Another one you have listed here. I wish my parents had sought professional help for their own struggles sooner than they did. Yes, 
That's a great point. So please just share more about this, if you would. Yeah. So my mom and dad, you know, I think one of the things with my OCD was that it became very overwhelming and it was easy to forget that there were more problems in life than OCD. And there were problems that existed before OCD came along, like in most families, you know, life is not perfect. And then all of a sudden OCD is dumped on top of it and it creates this very overwhelming pressure cooker. And I think for the longest time, my parents, in spite of the loneliness they felt, in spite of the ways that they were tempted to blame one another for how this got so out of control, whatever the case might be, they just didn't seek professional help when it probably would have benefited them. And by the time they did, a lot of things had snowballed to where there weren't really as many available solutions as there might have once been. Mm -hmm. And so they ultimately would get divorced. And that had a profound impact on my recovery journey, you know, to have this support system where I, I was leaning on it. I was, I was relying on it and then it fractured definitely made things, you know, noticeably more difficult. And even to this day, you know, there are lasting effects of that separation. And so I, I just wish that they would have sought that out sooner. I, I wish that a lot of parents out there really would feel validated that these situations can get extremely hard mm -hmm. and there's no shame in being open to the idea of seeking help from someone who's qualified to help people endure and build skills to deal with extremely overwhelming situations because these are very, very overwhelming situations in many cases. And I think a lot of parents feel like admitting that somehow means they're weak or something. And I certainly, I don't feel that way personally. And, and if my parents ever felt that way, if that was ever a driving force in why they delayed getting professional help, I wish that weren't the case. Yeah. Can I ask, in terms of, because you've mentioned growing up, uh, going to church. Sure. Was your faith community supportive of engaging in mental health services? Because I feel like modern day, it's growing even here in the Midwest and on the West and East Coast. Certainly there's a different level of buy-in and, and um, less stigma, I guess. But sometimes within the faith community, there can also be this sense of, you know, we just, you know, we can be fighting in the car, walk in, smile on your face. Everything's perfect. Everything's great. No, we're good. Um, and so let alone actually engaging in mental health, which sometimes is, is reframed as just a sin problem. You need to solve that. Did you guys run into that at all in terms of your faith community? Or did you find 
No, my faith community was very open to people going in and out of therapy because I think that can be a barrier sometimes for why families or adults even aren't getting into therapy sooner. Yeah, no, that was definitely um, something that our family dealt with, uh, both in me seeking out mental health services um, and in my parents, uh, you know, being willing to consider someone outside of a pastor mm -hmm. to maybe help them navigate uh, what they were up against. And so, yeah, that was certainly part of it this sense that I think a couple of things. Um, first, this sense that if someone doesn't share our faith values, that, you know, we really can't trust their guidance, right? So even if they are a psychologist, if they're not an evangelical Christian, you know, there's this fear that maybe they're going to lead us astray in some way. And I think secondly, just a general sense that, like you had mentioned, these things probably have spiritual solutions. And mental health was often seen as a real last resort. Mm -hmm. And I certainly wish that were different. I certainly hope in the coming years that evangelical culture can grow to understand that there is absolutely a place for mental health professionals, in my opinion, in faith communities. And I think it should be much more of an arm-in-arm -arm partnership than an either-or. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really key. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And I love that, if you know Reverend Kitty O'Dunn, she has been helping spearhead the faith and mental health kind of portion within IOCDF, which has been great. And trying to really bridge those two communities in terms of mental health and the faith community. Because it's what's interesting to me is, and I find this a lot too, like, yes, they need, if, if we're going to go to therapy, are they, are they a born-again Christian? Are they Catholic? Are they Jewish? Are they, you know, do they share this faith tradition? I think that comes out of, you know, because similarly as a marriage and family therapist when we're young, People say, oh, you know, people are going to be like, are you married? Do you have kids? How can you help me if you don't, if you're not married, you don't have kids. And so I think it comes out of the, I want you to be able to understand me. But again, your piece there, I think is also spot on in terms of like, what if they have this secular worldly way of trying to solve my problem? And, you know, and sometimes even there's a real resistance to medication or medications taken, but kind of in secret, like somebody talks to their GP and oh, they just had to put me on uh, you know, sexualing because of headaches and hormonal things, not because of my mental health. And it, and there's this shame and stigma, uh, which I do think is evolving and changing, uh, thankfully. But I think it is really hard because then, okay, if you're really struggling, Micah, then it's you that's struggling. So we can, okay, fine, get you in treatment. But we're just, you know, we're just, we're doing everything we can. Why would we need treatment when it is such a, a distressing and difficult place for them uh, to be. So yeah, I, I, I appreciate your willingness to share on that because I think it's something people can relate to as well. In terms of your wish list here, the next one we have 
is I wish my parents understood how powerful it was to acknowledge when they couldn't relate to my OCD. And I think that's also a really great point. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that we intuitively do when we see people suffering is we want them to not feel alone. We want them to feel that they are not lost at sea in this challenging experience. And so I think there's a lot of really altruistic motives behind our desire to tell people, I, I get it, I understand, I, I've been where you are. But I think there's this interesting paradox in, in my experience where some of the moments when I felt most comforted were moments when people would tell me, I feel for you, but there is no possible way that I could know what you are going through. There's no way I can know what it's like to live in your brain. And that was so impactful for a couple of reasons. The first of which is that when people would say things like that, I immediately knew they understand the exceptional nature of my suffering. Mm -hmm. They they understand that this is beyond just the ordinary worries of life that someone without OCD experiences from time to time. And the other thing that made that particularly helpful is that it didn't in any way minimize my suffering or blame that suffering on me. When, when people would tell me, I know what you're going through, I feel that too, even though it was well-intentioned, the subtext that I received, even if they weren't trying to say it was, what you're going through is fairly ordinary, just your ability to live with it is what is so out of control and not up to par. Right. And I know that's not what people intended. Right. But that's often what got communicated is that, you know, the reason that my life is in shambles and your life is mostly going the way that you wanted it to is not that I am dealing with an anxiety disorder that is much more acute than the ordinary worries of the adult world. It's because we both feel the same level of anxiety and I'm just terrible at dealing with it. So when people could recognize that, you know, maybe I check the stove or think about checking the stove every once in a while, but I don't go back and check it 13 times or I can't do the rest of my day. When people recognize the difference in severity and were willing to acknowledge that to me, even though <laughs> they were in a way telling me that I was alone in this, between the two of us, mm -hmm. I felt a lot more understood and supported that they recognized there's a difference between what I experience of stress and what this person does. And that was, it still is to this day, very powerful to me. And again, like you had mentioned earlier, it's very counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to think that I can make someone feel like 
they are more supported by making them feel that I don't understand their experience as deeply. But that, at least for me personally, may be different for other people, but at least for me, that has always been a real powerfully supportive way of talking about OCD with me. And I wish my parents would have understood, you don't have to tell me that you get this when you feel like you don't. The most powerful thing they could say to me sometimes would have been, we don't get it, but we're here for you. Right, right. Yeah. So that it doesn't feel dismissive. And and absolutely, I think that is really important. And on the flip side of the coin, too, the power we're having a support group with other shared lived experience can be powerful because they Mm. do get the gravity of it. And so knowing that you're not alone on that one side and then also knowing you're not alone, like, you know what, I can empathize, but I'm never going to be able to fully understand. But what I do understand is that you're fighting hard. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no. And I think you make a great point that when people actually have lived experience of OCD, yeah, it's extremely powerful to say, I get it. I've been there. But yeah, just to clarify my statement, yeah, it, with my parents not having that lived experience, being willing to put forward what they didn't understand certainly would have been really powerful as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. You also have listed here, I wish my parents understood how central the motif of tolerating uncertainty was to my ongoing recovery. Yes, yes. This is a tricky one for people. Certainly we can have multiple generations dealing with OCD or we can have an environment that is so accustomed to the OCD that sometimes it's a struggle. But yes, absolutely. Like the continuing nature of tolerating uncertainty is huge. Yeah, you know, this motif of tolerating uncertainty that we hear about a lot in the OCD community I wish when my journey was starting out that I knew just how central that concept was going to be in my own recovery. I wish my parents understood it. I wish I had the words back then to express that, wow, this is one of, if not the most overwhelmingly difficult challenges I face as a human being on planet Earth, Mm -hmm. right, is living with various forms of uncertainty. I find uncertainty to be such a hard part of life because there are so many things where, to my mind, it's like certainty is really necessary on this topic. I mean, how do we go about relationships and religion and morality and all of these things without absolute certainty. And, you know, my life has improved so much over the years, not because I have come to just love uncertainty in any way, but because my ability to cope with it has increased so dramatically. And I wish early on I would have known that. I mean, I I talked with my therapist at our last appointment about the discomfort and distress associated with various types of uncertainty. This is a, a theme that will probably be at the forefront of my focus for the rest of my life. It, it's yeah. just 
nothing has helped me get a better grasp of my life than really connecting to resources and working hard on this ability to live my life in a world that has this these amounts of uncertainty in it in places that I'll never be like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, like that, that's great. But I am learning to live with this tacit reality of human existence that I can't change. And I, I wish I would have known a long time ago that that one skill being improved over time would be more impactful in moving my life from where it once was to where it's on the road to today than I could have ever known years ago. Yeah, I think that's huge because it's not just about tolerating distress. It has to be on the foundation of uncertainty. Absolutely. And what I'll, I, I often tell clients, and I believe this absolutely, is that certainly OCD, I don't wish upon anyone. But one advantage that I think OCD sufferers have when they can get to this space where they can embrace uncertainty is they have a tool that, like you said, is going to be more powerful to them than anything, really, because the world is going to continue to say, I have the answer for this. And if you just do this and, and you know, if I just knew this, everything would be OK. And if you get to the point where you're like, boy, I'd really like to know that thing. But I know like I can't. I can't know. It doesn't mean it won't happen. It doesn't mean it will happen, but I can't. So even, you know, going to college or getting married or having kids, getting to that place of going, you know what? I can want this, but I'm okay knowing that I can't know if that's going to happen for me or not. Like that's a gift in the end. So it's an advantage that I like to say. And, and there's definitely controversy about society going, oh, yeah, it's an advantage if you have OCD. It means you keep things clean. It's like, no, that's not what it means. But I do think there is one silver lining. And it is that of going, hey, I'm in a world that wants to sell certainty, wants to sell the answer and is on this constant quest. And I can be okay going, <laughs> I don't need to know. I mean, I'd like to know, sure, but I don't need to know. That is a huge gift that I think once OCD sufferers and the family surrounding them, they embrace it as a part of treatment. Like that is a gift to be able to go through the day and go, okay, I don't have to know all the things. That's okay. It doesn't feel great. Sometimes it's easier than others, but I can live and I'm going to, I'm going to live. I'm going to go do my things. And that, that's the beauty within having that tool. So I think that's really powerful. And it's often what people don't like to embrace. Not that the distress feels good, but maybe if I could lower my distress somehow. Okay. And it's, it's really key, especially to ERP, to be able to embrace that uncertainty. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that there was a time before I went through a lot of treatment where I remember just thinking, how does everybody in the world get by 
without the answers to all these different conundrums. And I didn't realize that a lot of people are thinking of the same questions, mm -hmm. but they are accepting what I have now spent years learning to accept better that, like you said, I can't get the answer to that question. I can't solve that equation. And I think that took me a very long time to understand and to digest because at the beginning of OCD treatment, I was going into it with a sense of we're, we're going to figure these things out and then I'm just going to move on with my life. And it was a long process of realizing the reason that a lot of other people are not doing all the things you're doing is because, Micah, they've accepted what you have yet to acknowledge. And, and that was, a, that was a, a real difficult but necessary aspect of, of my growth. Yeah. And, you know, and I think we all have those things that we get hung up on. And so even for people that don't deal with OCD, there are certain things where they die on their swords for, you know, certain ideas. And, it, and often it feels different. But at the same time, again, this is where I go back to that. I, I, this is kind of the hidden gift in it. The hidden beauty is when you can embrace that, it makes all of those challenges a little easier to weather it doesn't feel good there's sometimes they feel real shitty to be honest but at the same time knowing i can deal with the uncertainty i was telling my husband a story once like yeah i really unintentionally hurt this person's feelings and i don't know what i did to do it but you know what like i i don't know if i'm gonna know and i don't need to go in and ask for reassurance we've talked about it to the extent that we can and you know, I'm sad that I did it, but I've learned from it. And he was like, how could you not know? Like, aren't you afraid you're going to do this to other people? And I'm like, I would have been. But now I can just accept like, wow, I messed up and I don't have to question my interactions with every single person now because this didn't go well. I don't even have to bring it back up to them, which is hard <laughs> to not be like, so, but are we good? You're right. You know, like, I don't have to do that. And it's not easy, but it's a big gift. You know, it takes a couple of days for me sometimes to go, like, I don't need to solve this. I have to tell myself, Nicole, you don't have to solve this. It just doesn't feel good. That's what it is. Yep. You hurt somebody's feelings. That feels shitty. You don't have to solve it. You've already done the solving in addressing it and taking responsibility. And there you go. It's just not feeling good. And so it is really hard, but being able to tolerate that is definitely a gift. So we have our last one here. I wish my parents had recognized that hope was partially our responsibility as a family. That is a powerful statement. I think hope is obviously the thing so many of us are looking for. We were looking for it. It's you just get to a place where OCD has made life so difficult and so exhausting and it's disillusioning. And the question is, how do we make things more hopeful? How do we find hope in this? And 
I've learned so many things over the years of struggling about how to create hope in my own recovery. But certainly one of the foundational insights that meant a lot to me and to my parents was the recognition that we had to decide that hope was going to begin with us and our attitude about OCD. You know, what was the narrative that we were going to tell ourselves about OCD every day? And certainly, you know, when you reach my age in my early 30s and OCD has taken so many opportunities in my 20s, it is very easy to get up and give this disorder more credit than it deserves, lull in all of the defeats and really feel like I think my 30s are going to be a repeat of my 20s. I think I'm just going to keep losing. Or there is an ability to get up every day and decide I know a lot more about recovery than I knew 10 years ago. I've connected to a lot of different forms of support that were not available to me when this started. This can get better. I know people that this has personally gotten better for them and, and be grateful for the chance to battle, the chance to get up and, you know, give my best to my OCD recovery every day and see where that takes me over time. And, and I think for the longest time, I really didn't see my approach, my family's approach, our attitude about how we thought about this on a daily basis. I, I didn't see how powerful that was. And, you know, I, I, it reminds me of, I'm from the state of Iowa. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the traditions that is popular at the University of Iowa is a tradition that they've essentially called the wave. And what they do is at a certain point in all of the home football games at Kinnick Stadium at the University of Iowa, they have the entire crowd stand up and turn around and wave at the pediatric oncology wing of the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. It overlooks the stadium. And so they coordinate it where they tell the children and their families, you know, come up to the window and all the people in the crowd are going to wave to you at this time. And it's this really beautiful moment, but it's just this incredibly sobering and humbling reminder that as awful as OCD is, not everybody gets a disease that they are told if you're willing to fight, there is a lot of progress that can be made. You know, some families are being given this horribly unfair and heartbreaking news that for your child, we're so devastated to tell you there just isn't much more that can be done. And so I, I just, I try to remember that when I watch the football games and I think about it often, even when I'm not watching the games in the fall, just the, the, the courage of these young children to face things far more daunting than what I'm facing 
and their families and, and to try to have that gratitude that yes, OCD has taken a lot from me, but there is still an opportunity to grow and to fight and to recover. And not everybody out there gets that. And so I want to steward that opportunity the best I can, because there are families out there that would love to be given even just a glimmer of hope that there's a really hard road ahead, but it can get better. And, and so I try to take ownership of that as humbly as I can and really choose hope as a foundation for creating more hope. Yeah, that's really powerful. I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, in your advocacy work, really what you are doing is you're sending that wave to families that have at times been told, even within OCD, there's no hope. Nothing's going to help. This is the worst case. And you're not the first advocate we've talked to that has felt that. And I think a lot of people have felt empowered to become advocates because they've been able to feel like they came above water and they want other people to know you can come above water too. There's, there is hope for you. And it, it is really, really powerful. But also what I like about the way you worded it is it's a choice as well. When we're in despair, whether things get better or not, we have to make actively a choice to hold on to that hope. And that's hard. That's hard. Some days it feels nearly impossible. That's where it's great to have a team around you that can hold the hope when you're like, I can't today. And they're like, it's okay. I got you. I got your hope right here. You know, we're here with you. Even if they can't fully understand or appreciate the gravity of the despair that you're feeling, knowing that someone's there and they're saying, I got your hope. No worries. Like, I got this. And having that team is so important, whether you're the parents, whether you're the sufferer, whether you're an adult, you're a child, you're a sibling, you're a friend. It can be anyone. We can go and we don't have to know all the people to give that wave and say, hey, there is help. And so I think that's, that's a really special and powerful visual, too, I'm sure. But also a good reminder. Yeah. I remember when I was in graduate school, I don't remember what happened, but I was talking to my dad. And I said, yeah, this is really troubling me. But, you know, a lot of people have it so much worse. And, and you know, I really don't. This is like a first world problem. I really shouldn't be complaining about it. And I'm feeling sad about this. And I didn't really have a ton of those, like, deep feeling-oriented conversations with my dad. But I'll never forget my dad said, just because your situation is different doesn't make it invalid, doesn't make it unimportant. It's okay to know that there's a war going on and you're still having a hard day. It's okay to know that some people are dealing with atrocities that you could never imagine. We just had, around the time of the recording, just had a, another shooting in Colorado Springs. It's like, yeah, mm. it's, it's terrible. And yet your pain still matters. And so keeping perspective that there's hope and this is hard. It's hard stuff. And so being able to choose hope and choose that as a family so that you don't feel alone in carrying that burden is huge. And so I think that's really helpful. Thank you for that. 
this has been so helpful. And Micah has just done a fantastic job of really processing and sharing his lived experience with us in a way that pays forward some of his growing pains along this OCD journey. So for today's Intrusive Thoughts segment, which is the segment of the show where I provide some practical application pieces, just a little something that you can pack up and take with you right out the door here, I want to first acknowledge that Micah gave us eight, yes, eight great pieces that we can apply. Also, I want to holla back to our ICBT side of the fam here too, because well, Micah and I really broke this down from an ERP perspective, I definitely can see where some hope could be found in understanding inferential confusion, inferences of doubt, obsessional doubting, and how we can reason ourselves into these very convincing, all-encompassing, difficult narratives. And I particularly thought of this when Micah was sharing about the importance of people validating the difference in the severity of his doubts versus their experience. I mean, those obsessional doubts are super tricky, really convincing stories. And to Micah's point, he spoke about how other people saying, dude, I get it, I've been there, bro, really felt dismissive. Because essentially, it felt like they were saying, your doubts, your distress, those aren't special. I get them too. You just suck at dealing with them. And something that I'm learning as we continue to talk and explore the facets of ICBT is it's really validating that actually you don't suck at this at all. You're a great reasoner. I mean, a fantastic reasoner. And anyone who has been with us for the course of this podcast could certainly agree because Micah reasoned and processed and shared these eight wish list items with us so beautifully. He's a great reasoner. The problem isn't how he reasons, how he deals. The problem is how OCD can take us out of our here and now five senses and over the bridge and through the woods into obsessional doubt. So I can certainly see, while breaking this all down from an ERP perspective was helpful, exploring that inferential confusion and how we reasoned ourselves into that space could also bring a lot of hope. But in closing, yep, I'm wrapping it up. You're like, hey, we're wrapping this party up, huh? <laughs> Flicker the lights. Here's your goat. Yes, we're wrapping it up. I just want to take a moment and take a page really from Micah's sharing here today and challenge you, OCD family community, to make up a wish list of your own. But Here's the catch. It's not going to be a wish list where we look back and we see what we've learned. And not because that can't be useful. I mean, this today, Micah, you just mic dropped on us in real time. So it certainly has been helpful and useful and will continue to be so. But I want to challenge you, me, us, to look and think forward. What is on your wish list? I know as we prepare to go into a new year, people tend to lean into these resolutions or they tend to refuse to lean into resolutions because resolutions aren't permanent. They're temporary and often we don't meet them. We're going to make a change, a lifestyle change. But in this here and this now, I want to challenge you to create a wish list for what you want 
for you and not necessarily within just this year or this season or this decade. But I want you to think about your hopes. As the partner, spouse, sibling, parent, please remember, this doesn't need to explicitly focus on your loved one with OCD. Maybe you have a family goal. Maybe you're like, we want to go travel and check these countries off of our bucket list. And maybe you haven't even thought or allowed yourself to dream because we all can get so caught up and focused on OCD. Well, OCD has taken enough from us already, and it's okay to dream. And these are not necessarily tangible must-dos. By this date, this will be achieved. Micah did a wonderful job of really communicating how the divide, the chasm, he said, between the expectation or the desire and the capacity for what was possible right here, right now, that added a lot of stress. But this is different. We are thinking about our hopes. We are embracing some of those positive aspects that we can look forward to that doesn't get defined by OCD. Because we want to live. We want our loved ones to live. We want to be free from the balance of what OCD allows or doesn't allow. What do you want to do when you grow up? Do you want to go back to school? Maybe. Do you want to explore a new hobby? Do you need to figure out what to do on laundry day to make it run a little smoother, a.k.a. run functionally? <laughs> that, one, that one might go on my wish list. What books do you want to read? What plays do you want to see? What places do you want to travel? What degree do you want to get? This is a challenge for you to live. And so I'm asking you, what's on your wish list? Take a moment in the hustle and bustle of this year. If you're in the uh, Midwest or Northeast, maybe you <laughs> have no choice but to be homebound in this winter storm. But irregardless, take a moment and do this. Do it for you. Do it for your loved ones. Do it as a tangible way to choose hope. You can choose it as a person. You can choose it as a family. You can choose it as a couple. You can choose it. And so let's choose it. And on that note, let's also ask Micah, hey, what's on your wish list? Because you know what? He's doing the thing. He's living. So let's lean in and hear what he has to say. So in kind of wrapping up here today, Micah, You've given us your wish list, and I think that's really, really helpful for people to be able to wrap their minds around some insight so that they don't have to wait until hindsight to be able to have these kind of building blocks. What's on your wish list for your future? I mean, you, you're still a younger man in your 30s, but ready to live, ready to embrace the uncertainty. And so what's on your wish list for the future? What does the future hold for Micah? I think one of the things that I, I try to do that I think years of recovery has probably instilled in me is, you know, I used to be very much a, oh, I'm going to plan everything out to a T and now I'm much more, let's just try to, you know, do the next step in front of us and, and see what happens from there. So 
Currently, I am kind of the next thing in front of me is I'm in the process of starting a business to provide support to parents, specifically of teenagers and adult children. So I'll have that up and running, hopefully in the next few months. And that's kind of the thing that's immediately on the radar. Also continuing to do advocacy, as we've discussed, that's been such a meaningful thing to me. And then, you know, we'll see where the next few years take me. It, it is, it is exciting to see possibilities out there. And so, yeah, we'll take it one, one day, one week, one month at a time and see where it ends up. Yeah. Very good answer on A plus on your uncertainty, <laughs> embracing your uncertainty. And do you have a website where if people, as you're getting ready to kick off this business, do you have a website where people could go to learn more about you or a way they could get in contact? If you said you're in Iowa, but I don't know if your reach could be even beyond Iowa. So is there a way for the listening audience to kind of stay caught up with you? Oh, absolutely. No, I, I'd love to to hear from anyone. I will have a website soon, but until I do, people can reach me on Instagram at mentalhealthmhe. Mental Health MHE. So I will also put that on this episode's blog post over at ocdfamilypodcast.com. If you're listening, I know like half the time I'm, when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm driving, I'm cleaning, or I'm falling asleep. <laughs> so if you're like, oh, I do want to follow up. What did he say that was? You can also go over and look at the blog post to learn more information about Micah. And then Micah was at both of the IOCDF conferences this year in Denver and online presenting. And so my guess is if you're at one of those conferences, you might just run into Micah running a, a workshop or attending along with you. And so that'll be something, too, that I'm sure we can continue to look forward to. Well, Micah, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to share these insights. You've put a lot of thought into it, and I think it's really, really helpful. And even as a person with OCD, having a child with OCD, it's a good reminder. Because again, all our cases can look so different. It's so, as we said before, individualized to the person and their creative brain. And so having these insights are really, really helpful. And I just appreciate the time that you've taken to help our community lean in and understand more perspective on what could be helpful as they navigate OCD. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a great conversation for sure. Absolutely. I think this is this is going to be so helpful. So we'll give you that wave, Micah, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like sharing a story and singing its glory. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com. <laughs>